and I, and that that is the pain that that is being described. I agree in this in this 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 cultural moment, this community of people who got turned against by culture, um, and and, and in, a, in an inconsistent, hypocritical way by media, by culture, and and kind of uh, uh, demonized by those by by culture for this disease. everyone welcome back thank you for tuning in to another episode of no script an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts i am jackson nikolai i am jacob mann christensen we are thrilled that you are joining us for what is now the third episode of our new season it's still early and already we have had a blast with the different different kinds of plays that we are looking at it's one of the great great joys great fun things about the podcast is what all different kinds of scripts we get to read absolutely getting to read plays from all over the place all all sorts of different times and places and situations and and yeah yeah it's always fun to kind of read plays and let them speak into new realities and new times (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm kind of segueing into uh the announcement of the play that we're talking about this week which is lonely planet by stephen deets yeah stephen deets is sort of commonly referred to in reviews and articles and interviews and such are done with him as one of the more prolific American playwrights, even despite the fact that he's not had a show on Broadway. His plays are really not produced in New York much at all, yet he still remains one of the most produced American playwrights of the past 30 years. His plays are hugely popular in the regional theater scene, the community theater scene, the educational theater scene, and, and so he he's an incredible playwright in just in terms of the sheer number of works that he has had produced you know he's got more than like 30 plays up up towards 50 plays by now that are published and produced uh, he he's well known as an adapter too he's got one of the more popular adaptions of dracula and go dog go i mean the dude is incredible and I, I got to see him speak at an American College Theater Festival. He gave a really rousing speech to open the theater festival, which was kind of a privilege to see one of the great playwriting voices of our time at this regional college theater festival inspiring nice. all of us young artists. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool that you got to see him. Yeah, I, I'm excited to get to to talk about him on the show. First time we've been able to talk about one of his plays on the show. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get to jump into this one. Yeah, and Lonely Planet is an interesting one to talk about of his, too. Of course, this is the first Stephen Dietz play that we have done on the podcast so far. Um, There will probably be more in the future, given how many great plays he's got out there. But this is the first one. And it it is... it's one of the first couple of his plays that really launched his playwriting career. I mean, it wasn't, it's not really one of his early plays in terms of the stuff he actually wrote, but for its popularity, it's one of the ones that kind of launched him into the spotlight onto the scene a little bit. And as we discuss the play, I think you'll see why Lonely Planet is a really powerful, really funny, really bizarre, but impactful, memorable script. 
Mm-hmm. And and it's a it's a it's got a lot of like elements going for it. You know, it being a two hander, it using props really interestingly. So a very very producible script as well. De- definitely, yeah, highly producible. It's one of the plays that I'd really love to direct someday. I, I, as we'll talk about it, it's got a new context now because uh, I'll just give a little tease of my later synopsis. The Lonely Planet is set within the AIDS epidemic. Um, it's a play from the early 90s. And, you know, it. so it's a play about a disease which is ravaging a community. And we live in a time where there is a disease ravaging our world. And so it, it has some interesting new dimensions now that, of course, certainly weren't intended when the play was uh, written before, but will be interesting as part of our conversation, probably. Yeah, it's it's interesting how plays continue to speak into new moments. Certainly, this the the the, the moment that this play is written in in is a as we'll talk about in the context and synopsis is a is a huge moment both for the theater scene in New York um, and for the for the community who was affected by the AIDS p- epidemic, namely the LGBTQ community. So it's a huge moment there, and it's and then it's so interesting to now, however many years later, now the number almost twenty years later, I think over twenty years later, math is hard, almost um, thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years later to have uh, another kind of uh, vernacular human experience to have a lot of this play speak into. Yeah, as a as a side note, isn't it isn't it weird that the early 90s were 30 years ago now? Uh, let's see. Oh boy. <laughs> There's that <clears throat> yep, feature where because it was fine. like on the century gap, people have talked about the fact that like people will sort of always think about the 90s as 20 years ago. Yeah. No matter how far in we get here, because it it kind of came right before that century break. Anyway, before we move <laughs> on to talking more about the play, obviously we've got some things that we're excited to talk about already. We do want to invite all of you who have not yet become patrons of the show to consider it. You can do that at patreon.com slash no script podcast. You know, at this point, we, we aren't running ads. We're not selling merch. All we do to support the life of the podcast is ask those who are listeners who like what we do, who want to see us do more of what we do to just support it. Uh, you can do that. Like I said, patreon.com slash no script podcast. You'll join a monthly tier level. That's just a monthly amount that you choose to give to the show. The amounts are very low. The lowest amount is $1 a month. So for $12 a year total, you can do a lot to really help the podcast. Um, there's other tiers if you have, feel like you have more to give beyond that. And even just at that $1 level, you'll become a patron. You'll have access to the patron stuff that we have at Patreon, which notably you get to know what scripts are coming up earlier that's kind of one of the major perks but there are other things over there which you can check out at patreon.com slash no script podcast for all of you who are patrons thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you as we say as much as we can uh, no script would not be where it is would not be alive as it is without the support of you all it's it's expensive to run a podcast like this there are fees there are you know scripts we've got to buy that we can't find in other ways and so you and that's just sort of beside the amount of time that Jackson and I put into producing a weekly podcast. So without that support, we couldn't be doing what we're doing. So thank you, thank you to all of you who are patrons. And if you're not, hope you'll consider it. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. 
Yes, thank you all so much for helping out the show. It means the world to us. It means the world that you all listen in the first place and that we get to have these conversations with you, and especially to those of you who have head over to patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you for your for your uh, help in in uh, this work that we're doing and these conversations we get to have. And now, back to the script. Back to the script. Here we go. We're jumping in. We already did uh, a bit of the context for this play. Um, so I'm going to I'm gonna give you some dates around which this, this play was written and was uh, produced. Uh, but we, we've kind of set up uh, a little bit the cultural situation that this play is written in. The height of the AIDS epidemic. Um, it's, we're talking about 1993, 94, 95 uh, productions uh, were premiered at the Northlight Theater in Illinois in uh, January of 93. Uh, then, then in 94, it had a, a production out at the Contemporary Theater in Seattle. And, uh, and then in 95, hit the Circle Repertory Theater in uh, New, York, New York City. And uh, that was kind of the, 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 the crescendo of that particular branch of the play. When it was originally written, it, uh, it went to the Circle Rep there. Uh, most recently, it's had a, a production by the Keene Company on an off-Broadway production in 2017. Um, so that's the most recent uh, kind of uh, large acclaim production of this of this play though it continues to be produced as we mentioned it's a two-hander it's it's very easy to produce as far as staging goes really deep script really good characters to dig your teeth into but as far as the production goes you can you can do it in in regional houses quite easily so uh so it's a good play for that um and uh yeah the uh, the 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 situation we're talking into just like keeping in mind we're in we're in the 1990s and uh yeah move, moving into moving into that conversation yeah and it's it's it is one of the confusing things about Stephen Dietz as we kind of teased in the intro that his plays are not done in New York that much that off Broadway production in 2017 is an outlier for how good his body of work is to find it over in New York and as a really regular interviewee for other theater podcasts and shows I hear from Stephen Dietz quite a bit and he talks about this some he says some of it just might be that he's never really been a New York guy he doesn't live in New York his plays were mostly developed in places like Seattle in places like Austin. He was a professor at Texas at Austin for a while in the Midwest. And so they just don't matriculate up to New York as easily as New York playwrights shows would. He also tells uh, kind of a, a funny, a little bit sad story in terms of like the state of American theater about all he would say is uh, artistic directors from New York that you would know. He doesn't tell you who they are. And he says that some of his friends, artistic directors from New York that you would know, would say that his success, the success of his plays at regional houses are proof that the plays are not smart enough or mean enough for a New York theater. That's what he said. Whoa. Like an artistic director has told him that, that because his plays are popular elsewhere, they are not smart or mean enough for New York City theater, is a, is a story Yikes. he tells in an interview. That's a tough one, and it, it's, a, it's a shame because he's got really, really good plays. This one, of course, did make it to New York, and it, it's exactly the right kind of sharp, pointed, funny, but heartwarming, heartbreaking at times kind of play to to have that success in terms of his career. It won several awards, too, so it, it, it made that jump to New York City. The play itself is set in sort of an unnamed American city um, at a place called Jody's Map, Map Shop. So that's the primary setting of the play is this map shop. 
Um, this was the early 90s. I don't even know in the early 90s how popular map stores really were, but obviously definitely a different time period than now where I don't even, I mean, I, I think I own some physical maps of like hiking trails in the national parks. But other than that, I'm not really sure how many real physical maps I actually own anymore. <laughs> uh, I have this thing called a smartphone. But we're talking 30 oh. years ago, so Jody's Map Store is the primary setting of the play. The play opens with Jody, the uh, one of the two characters in the play, discovering a chair in his map store. Um, on face value, I'm not sure we, we as the audience would recognize that that was particularly unusual to start with, but he does the work to tell us, I've never seen this chair before in my life. It just showed up one day. Then we meet uh, the other character in the play, a gentleman named Carl. Both of these guys are kind of bordering middle age. Carl's a little bit younger than Jody. I think Jody 40s, Carl 30s. And Carl initially is this bizarre fellow. Got a, a real bunch of energy. He's got some real weird habits. He's got uh, kind of a fast pace, kind of intense way of speaking. And he has an odd thing about him, which is that he kind of lies about a lot of stuff. Uh, Jody highlights the fact that he doesn't have any idea what Carl does for a living. Carl claims many, many different things. That he replaces windshields at an auto glass store. That he is uh, an art restorer at a museum. That uh, later in the play he claims that he's a detective in charge of doing like fingerprinting. So he, he has all these different things that he says he does. That's a kind of one of the notable odd things about him. And then the other odd thing, which is the kind of bulk of the, the story of the play, is these chairs that he keeps bringing in. It starts with the chair that opens the play. And then across the course of the rest of the play, he brings in another chair and another chair and then a whole bunch more chairs. And the map shop begins to fill with chairs and, and and not just a few chairs a bunch of chairs i believe jody at one point says it's moved past cluttered into bulk i'm surrounded <laughs> by a bulk of chairs there are chairs everywhere and, and the kind of your experience of the script is that for the first while jody is like our sort of every man kind of view to this odd gentleman named carl but as you discover more and more about the play, one of the things you learn is that these chairs represent friends that Jody and Carl have lost to AIDS. Uh, we learn that Jody and Carl are both gay men. They're, they're not gay men in a relationship. They're really good friends, and it's very clear in the play that they're not romantically involved at all and have no interest in that. They're just really good friends who live in the midst of the terrible AIDS epidemic, which is stealing their friends from them one by one. And as their friends pass... Carl brings in a chair from their place. He helps to clean out their apartments. We learn that he actually helps to do the paperwork that surrounds their deaths. And so many of them don't have, you know, their families who, you know, booted them out or don't want to talk to them anymore. So there's nobody to do their paperwork or clean out their apartments. And so Carl does that. And he brings the chair from the from one of these friends who has passed apartment to the map shop. And that that's sort of why he is doing that. The other thing that we learn is that Jody is not as, uh, n like, quote-unquote normal compared to Carl as we thought. In fact, Jody is experiencing the AIDS crisis in his own 
painful way, which is that he has become afraid to leave his map store. Uh, on many days, he does not even open the store at all. Uh, he doesn't go home. He orders in his food, and he is holed up and hidden. And w- what we learn is that some of Carl's seemingly bizarre personality is kind of intentionally pointed at getting Jody out of the shop, helping him to kind of rebuild a healthy life in the midst of all the fear that surrounds them from this disease. The the corner decision of the play, kind of the central moment, is that Jody decides eventually to leave the map shop to go get tested uh, for AIDS and to stay away for a week, take a week's vacation. And he kind of comes back with a new perspective. And then in the crushing final moment of the play, that last scene, Carl brings a chair from his own apartment to the map store, of course, signifying that he is probably likely to pass from AIDS soon as well. That is Lonely Planet. These are really funny dudes. Their wit, their humor, and their friendship are the kind of shining beacons of a play that is also kind of about grief and loss and pain and fear. So a play that's about these really hard things that's couched in these really lively, light, witty characters. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk about that 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 like the visible symbol of the play. One of the two, I think, main visible symbols of the play, and we'll talk about both of them, I believe. But the 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 big one we t- you already have talked about are the chairs, right? And of course, the stunning realization partway through the play that each of these chairs represents a friend who has died, and and the the stage is cluttered, like there are lanes. The 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 script describes lanes that uh, get the characters to the water fountain or the the water cooler to the door, to the desk, but the rest of the story is just covered in these chairs, this kind of gut punch as you realize these chairs represent all the friends who have passed. Yeah, and we get a connection to that early in the play that does not land, um, intentionally doesn't land. It's just something that you look back and go, oh, I get it now, which is that Jody is trying to get Carl to take this random chair, this first chair that he's brought in out of this place. What the heck? Why did you bring this chair? Get this get this chair out of here, man. What, what is going on? And Carl doesn't. Carl tries all these different tactics, really occupies much of the first scene, is all the different tactics and the negotiation over this chair of Carl getting, trying to get Jody to keep the chair here. He tries to pretend it's a birthday present. He tries to pretend that he's going to take it home, but in fact he is slips off. He sort of runs away really quickly. Oh, I forgot something and slips out um, and like he's for oh I forgot the chair there. Uh, Jody at one point says, "Sure, you can leave it here. I, I'm going to Goodwill tomorrow. I can just drop it by for you." And Carl gets really defensive, and the the play kind of culminates, or the the scene I mean, kind of culminates with Carl saying, "Bobby died. Our friend Bobby died." Now, yeah. as the audience, th- there's no really clear connection where Carl says, "This was Bobby's chair. Bobby died." Do you get it? But once we learn, once the revelation happens much later in the play about what these chairs signify, you can look back at that first chair and understand the significance of the scene now. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 then, and then mixed into that scene is a whole bunch of information we're learning about Carl, too, and about Carl and Jody's relationship, specifically that Carl seems to like to lie a lot. So there's also that kind of chaotic element as we're learning about the chair situation is that we know, I think on like page three, uh, Jody like stops Carl's kind of manic entrance into the room by saying, okay, we need to stop and play our game. And our game is that we tell the truth for a little while. 
So we know that Jody knows that Carl lies all the time. And we are welcomed into that fact very early in the script. So it, there's there's a confusion over why he's bringing the chairs. And especially as the chairs pile up and up in like scene two and three of the play, we're still wondering why this, you know, this, this uh, self-avowed liar is bringing these chairs in because he still hasn't like fully told us yet. And there's some great humorous moments that surround the bringing of the chairs in. Like at one point, <laughs> Jody has to answer the phone and, you know, Jody's map shops, Carl, it's for you. They say they have a chair for you. And Carl sort of immediately just marches out of the store <laughs> off to get right. this other chair that he's going to bring into the room. But and yeah. that, So that's one of the visual images, one of the props that kind of occupy what you're seeing of the play. But there, the other one is the map. Of course, the play is set in a map store, as we've said. Kind of an odd setting for the play, except that Dietz uses different negotiations of maps and locations to sort of frame around all these chairs. One of them is the way that a flat map of the globe sort of intentionally has to be distorted because you're trying to create a flat representation of a globe. Of course, I think nowadays that idea is taught in school, and so that's a really familiar idea to many of us. But I would imagine when the play was released in the 90s that that would have been a more interesting sort of tidbit or fun fact for the audience about how these maps have to be distorted. But the distortion of what you're seeing on a map becomes one of the way one of the metaphors that Dietz uses throughout the play. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a great use of kind of three different maps. He has the Mercator projection, which for for those I don't know if I'm saying that right, but there's the it's the version that has Greenland really huge. Uh, so y'all have probably seen that one. There's yeah, the it's Piers like the kind of standard uh, map of the world, which again nowadays I think we all know is wrong. It right. it intentionally inflates the size of especially northern countries as a way to deal with the fact that. The, the lines of uh, is longitude the one that goes horizontally? <laughs> yes, I think so. That the, to deal with no, the fact that lines no, of it's it's lat, latitude. Latitude, latitude right. is flat. <laughs> yeah, so latitude to deal with the the fact that the lines of latitude, you know, on a globe get smaller the closer you get to the pole because they only have to circumnavigate you know like a smaller circumference of that part of the Earth's crust. So to deal with that, to represent it flat, the farther away you get from the equator on that map, the more distorted the size of countries are. So as Jackson was saying, the size of Greenland is kind of the core metaphor for the script about how distorted the size of Greenland is on that map. Right, right, which is juxtaposed by another map, which I think is the Peters projection, which has the more, like, real size of nations. Um, and and that's then the it's... one that's, like, all cut up, I think, right? It doesn't, it doesn't appear as, like, one flat whole image. In order to deal with the distortion, it sort of cuts up the image along different circular lines so that the size of countries does match. Right, right. And then that is further juxtaposed with a huge image of the globe taken from Apollo 17 uh, astronauts taking the picture of the, of the, of the globe itself. And, and that is, that globe is used uh, a number of times throughout the play. Important conversations are had underneath it and, and it's tied to, to further kind of push out this metaphor of the maps and perception and, 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 and narratives that are believed. And it's, 
I mean, it, it's such a central image of the play, this picture of the globe, that, of course, it is what inspired the title, Lonely Planet. It, the picture is the famous blue marble picture. that, And, and the way that Jody describes it in the play is that the astronauts were assuming that when they took this picture of the Earth, they would sort of be showing off its grandeur and its incredible beauty. And what they found was that it really ended up being a picture of this sort of low Lonely blue marble floating in blackness. And of course, that becomes Lonely Planet, the title of the play. There's a great visual change to the to the picture late in the play when this, uh, Jody is finally kind of returning from his his time out uh, and, and so they they light these candles underneath the blue marble picture um, mm-hmm. and you can imagine how that would visually the the rippling light of the fire across that gorgeous black image with the blue marble yeah. Yeah. No, it's super powerful imagery, especially juxtaposed with these like stacks of chairs all around. Um, and, and, and of course, like, like these, the, the characters continue to interact with all of these throughout, like we get, we get chairs and chairs, uh, from Carl all the way to like the second to last scene of the play. At one point he, there's one of the big confrontations of the play. Jody like closes the door, locks it to keep him out. And Carl, breaks the window with a chair leg, unlocks the door and continues to bring chairs in. Yeah, and and the the maps continue to be negotiated too, right? That that as we move from the really distorted image of the earth, the more standard distorted image of the earth that Jody shows us early in the play and talks about its distortion, then we move on to the 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 picture of the the earth, the map of the earth that is correctly proportioned but looks very weird in how it's cut up and it's it's visually odd to look at the globe in terms of its actual size of countries because we're all used to seeing the distorted image. And and Carl sort of points that out, how odd the map is. And Jody's response is something like, well, this is the version of a map that tells you what you need to see, tells you something accurate and true. And that becomes a metaphor for both of these gentlemen as they have to kind of take that on themselves in their friendship. Am I going to be the one that tells you something you need to hear, that tells right. you a truth you need to see? Yeah. No, it's it's interesting to think, like, like which version of the map is the character doing at the, that particular moment? Because I think it, it kind of, like, depending... Yes, Carl, uh, like factually lies a lot and yet he's telling you something really important about his life in almost all of his lies or something about the people that he's I, I, the, the 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 professions that he has uh that he describes he himself having have, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of which there are like five or six at least that we hear about we discover are the professions of the friends who have died and so he's he's kind of living into those remembering them well but internalizing them and kind of so that so there is a truth still much like the the mercator map which has the wrong sizes of the the countries but the truth is that the like navigation needed it for a while in order for people to plot a a true course and so there's there's that 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 fascinating extra dimension of like uh, of lies and truth and when when both are needed and when both uh, are are kind of spoken into and and owned by both the characters and the maps on the wall 
Yeah, and so the the initial map that we see with the distorted size of the countries, it it ends up functioning for Jody as this kind of representation of I think it's the way that the AIDS epidemic has sort of a distorted um, impact on his life. It, just, he, it, it hangs over him in this oversized fear bucket that just pours on him day after day and causes him to stagnate. And the metaphor then, as the play transitions to the map where things are accurately proportioned, is not that the fear is non-existent, but that it exists proportionally to all the other accurate things in his life. And Carl becomes that person for Jody that says, this is what you need to see. Uh, and it... It let, let's talk about the play in its context now, right? Yeah. Because it yeah. it it is a little bit striking to read a play about someone needing to overcome their fear of a disease and the impact it's having on their friends and family by leaving their shop, right? In the right. middle of COVID, and obviously this is this is not what Stephen Deeds intended, but it's just the reality of the play's life right now. This would not have been the play's life a year ago today, but it is now. Yeah, no, there's 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 fascinating parallels, right? And and not to, uh, I, I agree that we I, I'm excited to get to, to kind of talk about the parallels, but but also to acknowledge like the the play, as you said, was written in a different situation that had its own weight. Um, but the 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 the, the, <laughs> the the lines like I'm afraid to go outside. Um, I'm, I'm afraid to go out. I'm afraid to get a, a test. Uh, Jody, uh, is going to get a test, a blood test for, to, to find out whether he has AIDS or not. He's been putting it off for a long time. Um, and he, he, uh, he goes in by the end of the play and it, it's, it's striking, right? To hear him get the phone call. He's calling the hospital and saying, uh, getting his results back. And he, and he tells Carl that he has a, a negative test and that, I mean, that lands, really different right now right we've all been we many of us have had similar emails or phone calls right after after tests like that so so yeah it's just it's fascinating to kind of find find those like guy lines in there that that tie it to the present well and it's it's magnified by the fact that one of the choices Stephen Dietz made in writing the play is not to use the word aids it mm -hmm. is it is an uns and I, I don't even think that the word gay is in the play at all either, despite the fact that those are the given circumstances of the surrounding, that these are gay men and their community of friends. Obviously, the LGBTQ community was the community that was most seriously ravaged by COVID or not by COVID, not by COVID, by AIDS in the early 90s. So but but because Dietz set just uses words like the disease, the test. And the, yeah. he doesn't use the language of specificity from the time, and that was an intentional writing choice. It even more, it, it kind of creates this new bizarre doubling of the play to now. Right, right. And we, we've talked before about uh, the way plays are set in the present. This play is set in the present, and we do see intentional choicing around that i feel in that in that writing right this is this 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 could very well be interpreted as an attempt by stephen Dietz to kind of 
open up this play to more instances, <laughs> more, more, more experiences of people. Well, and it certainly I'm does not in sure our moment. I agree with you on that. It, it well, you don't like the present specific, designation well, in that's general. True. <laughs> it, so what we're talking about, if, if you're new to no script, or you haven't listened to some of the other episodes before, sometimes when playwrights write scripts in the time setting descriptions at the beginning, instead of just writing like the year they want the play to exist in, they just write the present. But all that really ends up meaning is the year I wrote the play. <laughs> Um, and that is especially true in this play, which is 30 years since the present, but that's what's written at the beginning of the script. And it, I'm not sure I think that Dietz had this idea that the play, because he didn't use the word AIDS, could apply to more situations because it is very specifically located. I'm thinking of the great scene where uh, Jody and um, and Carl have that awesome sword fight with with the different tubes of maps and they're yeah. they're they're speaking about very specific political realities as they do it they're playing <laughs> different sort of political <laughs> characters of the early 90s as they do it and the other thing is that it i just think that Stephen Dietz was really trying to write a play about the pain of the AIDS epidemic for probably for people who have not experienced it or have not seen it. There's some really nice commentary, and I, I, I forget which of the two men make the commentary, but they're talking about how in the in the news media and the sociological world of the early 90s, there were people who were um, more celebrity type of folks or m people who not weren't necessarily had a direct connection to the AG LGBTQ community who would get AIDS and would pass from it. And there would be this sort of national outpouring of grief when those people suffered and died from AIDS. But the reality was that people from the LGBTQ community were dying of AIDS by the dozens every day, and nobody had any grief for them nationally or, or publicly because they didn't want to be seen approving of what those people did, I think is how it's said. They, they talk about a police officer friend of theirs who was a gay man and, and died of AIDS, and there was no um, there was no sort of police kind of ceremonial funeral where many, many people showed up to honor the life of this officer because his fellow officers did not want to be seen as approving of his gay lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's, uh, that's a really powerful monologue by Carl that really kind of focuses on the hypocrisy of the American news cycle of the American culture during the time of this, this epidemic that they, the, I think the line that he says, I have it here is, but this culture can't just grieve that life. He's talking about the innocent child or the unsuspecting woman who dies of AIDS. They have to place it above others. They have to remind us that these people did not deserve it. They didn't do anything wrong. They're just normal people. Unlike those deviants who got what they deserved. And I, and that that is the pain that that is being described. I agree in this in this 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 cultural moment, this community of people who got turned against by culture, um, and and, and in an inconsistent, hypocritical way by media, by culture, and and kind of uh, 
uh, demonized by those by by culture for this disease. And and so it, the play is very specifically set in this cultural moment and has some very specific sharp commentary about that cultural moment in American history. And it is unfortunate, I think, then that its its life is probably going to be a little bit subverted by the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, it, it is hard to get around the fact that the crucial character decision in this play is a decision to leave the place where he's holed up in the middle of our and that you know it, it just rings oddly in the middle of our society where quarantine stay home if you're sick don't go out don't gather is kind of the way that we have to battle back this particular disease and i don't know if 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 way back when Stephen Dietz had chosen to write this play using more specific language about AIDS and that, you know, that that world, if that would have helped offset the strange doubling that happens when you encounter this play right now or not. I, I regret that I, I don't know how this play will have, you know, at least in the near future, what kind of life this play will really have because of its strange, strange, unintended connections to today's pandemic. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, certainly interesting to kind of, kind of notice that, that difference. He, he does leave to get a test. Um, so, so that is part of it. Uh, but, uh, the, uh, the kind of interestingness of, I think the interestingness of a, a play that, that speaks into the moment in a new way, but then also the the fact that it is so grounded in a specific moment. Uh, the, the the back of the play uh, describes it, uh, or uh, at least in mine from the uh, article from the Seattle Times, uh, Lonely Planet can be classified as an AIDS drama. And I think it is a part of that history. It's, a, it's, it's almost moved into a historical, but you just said way back when about the nineties, which hurt a little bit, <laughs> um, but, the, but it is, it is, it is a bit of a cultural historical uh, artifact or crystallization of a moment. So I, I, I think that there is, there's, there's a facet of it that will continue to, to speak into and, and, and attest to that moment, though it will certainly be conflated by our, our, this, this, this following pandemic that we, that we have lived through. So there's some interesting sort of writing theatrical features of the play that make it so kind of quirky and odd and and fun, even as it discusses these really hard, overwhelming things. One of the things that stood out to me as I was encountering these men is how often these two men say each other's names. I mean, it cannot be anything but an intentional choice by Stephen Dietz. I mean, they say Carl and Jody hundreds of times in each specific scene. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think part of that is that they're both such obfuscators, right? Like, to, <laughs> I, certainly uh, initially, you can feel the pain of, of Jody trying to get Carl to stop for a second, to stop bringing chairs in, for heaven's sakes, to tell me the truth about something for a second. And that, like, saying of the name is almost this, like, uh, uh, you know, child parenting model of, hey, hey, Carl, Carl, listen to me, um, and saying the name, repeating the name. But that becomes true of Jody by the end of the play, too, as Carl is trying to get him to go outside, trying to get him to go take his test. He has to, you know, repeatedly draw him back to the conversation that they're having. 
Yeah, so I'm just I'm on a, a kind of just a random page for my copy of the script, which is the acting edition. And this is just one page. I'm just going to skip around. I'm going to read you all the different times Jody says Carl's name in one page of the script. He says, thank you, Carl. Later, no, Carl. Next line, I'll take the chair, Carl. Uh, a couple lines later, you live in a shoebox, Carl. A couple lines later, can we play our game now, Carl? A couple lines later, he just says Carl. The next line after that, this is the way things go with Carl. The it, ending, it, the, pretty much the, the repetition of the names is often at the end of the sentence um, is, is typical. There's the great scene where Carl kind of almost cuts Jody's hair, sort of pretends like he gave him a haircut, but it was really just like a snip of hair off the back of the head. <laughs> and in that scene, it is really emphasized this back and forth of saying each other's names. And I like what you said about how all of the obfuscation around who these people, especially Carl, really are, might be one explanation for continually using the name to try to pierce through all of the cloudiness to some sort of real person. Jody is the one who makes the commentary about how we never really know the people that we're closest to. He's sort of lamenting, you can imagine, especially amidst all the death of their friends and things like that, how poignant that would be for somebody to kind of have this realization that even these people that we supposedly know the best we do not really know at all and that becomes kind of one of the questions of the play at least for jody mm-hmm. i love the feed the the kind of feedback loop that carl gets on that as well how carl because carl is you know living out all these people's lives in his head or in, in, attesting that he lives out their jobs um but he also turns it on jody right like he says i do the same thing for you i created you um, and for a second, you're like, wait a minute, which script, what script am I reading? Is Jody a real character? Um, and, and, uh, and, and, but he says like, I create whatever your life is when I'm not with you. I, I create, you know, what, what you are like at home, what, what, what you're doing when I'm not here. And it really is this kind of like, there's, there's a lot in this play about friends and friendship and, and the difference between uh, like Carl and, and Jody bring up partway through the play, um, that they've never fallen in love with each other. Um, but they've remained like true friends, good, deep friends as uh, as as the, as they've gone through their lives. And that that friendship aspect of like you, you, you witness each other and yet you don't witness all of each other. You, there's there's pieces that are left blank still. And, and what do you remember about someone once they're gone? And there the other thing that the 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 way that these guys speak, the. Um, the repetition of each other's names over and over is just kind of one example of it, is that it, it lends the play just a little bit of a tone of unreality. Just a little bit of a... This is not so much a slice of, like, naturalistic life kind of experience. Of course, you get that experience visually as well as this map store fills up with chairs. Uh, yeah. So there is this kind of pulling away from the any kind of very specific, perfect representation of real life into the theatrical space where these guys talk in this sort of funny, quirky way. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, the, the, the sword fight is such a strange, like, really playful young person scene where they're they're quoting, like, Shakespearean dialogue and fighting with rolled up maps with each other. So, yeah, the, the like, the trueness of their friendship is still there. The, like, almost childlike nature of their friendship is, is on display, and yet it's couched in these truly tragic circumstances that they're trying to grapple with. Another interesting feature of the play and one of the kind of the memorable signposts for how the play is built in each of these parts is Jody's dreams. Oh, you beat one me of, to it. Yeah. Nice. So <laughs> one of the features of their friendship, we get the sense. We we learn a lot of the features of their kind of odd friendship. Uh, there's a great line that Carl repeats all the time. I'm happy. Take a picture. Um, that clearly is just like something that they say in their friendship as kind of an inside joke, an expression of affection. So there, there's stuff like that all through the play. And one of them is that Carl always asks Jody what kind of dreams he's had, especially like what's a fun dream or a really interesting dream that you had. And Jody's initial reaction, I think it's just part of the scripted nature of this interaction, it seems to me, is that he initially declines to offer anything and eventually reveals this sort of strange dreams that he's having. Again, that's a, a kind of uh, under-exaggerated mirror of Carl's constant lying is that Jody also is sort of initially is constantly lying about whether he's had these dreams and then eventually reveals the truth. Anyway, so there's three dreams that Jody describes in detail in the play. And of course, three, the sort of magic storytelling number. The third one is a really distinct one from the other two and helps tell part of the story. But the, the features of these dreams is that Jody always, and typically from a, like a goodwill, ends up dressed in the job of someone else. Um, in the initial dream, he like buys from the goodwill some uh, the clothing of like an off-duty fireman, basically. And then in the dream, there is some sort of terrible disaster. And because of the way he's dressed, Jody is asked to help confront the disaster. The, he, in describing the dream, it always ends with, oh, and I just remembered that you were also there, Carl. And you were one of the people who was trying to get me to confront this disaster, to, to, to live up to the clothing that I bought in the goodwill. So the fireman example is the first one. And then the second one is really impactful, the dream about boxing. Right, right. The, the, he says that he he wanted to uh, he, he got the pan, he got the shorts because he liked the Everlast shorts, and then he's all of a sudden thrown into a ring where he's boxing. Um, and and the 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 Carl moment is Carl is on the sidelines. He asks him for water, and Carl doesn't give it to him. He kind of shoves him back into the fight. He's getting exhausted. He needs water, and yet he's kind of pushed back into the fight to to kind of get pummeled by this this other boxer that he's up against. And so this dream about boxing ends up being kind of a cornerstone metaphor for the fear that these two guys are confronting over the course of this sort of witty, delightful play. I just want to quote you this incredible moment as Jody's describing the end of his dream. Again, he's dressed as a boxer, so they've thrown him into a boxing ring. And uh, of course, Carl is also there and he's pushing him back into the ring, trying to get him to box. This is what the quote is. Um, he says, a bell rings. I stand up and step forward. And this is the thing. They will train you. They will teach you to hit. They will teach you to move. But they never tell you about the fear. 
Nothing the people in your corner can tell you will prepare you for the fear. There is a huge man in that ring, and he plans to omit you. Mm-hmm. What a line. Isn't that scary? He plans yeah. to omit you. Yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, in that line, you hear Jody talking about the fear that he's going through right now, the reason he doesn't want to go outside. You see Carl's tactic in that dream, too, of just shove him outside, <laughs> essentially. Um, and you see the, 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 the kind of pressure that Jody feels from Carl, from the world, from this other boxer, from the pressures of the world that is impending on him and his desire to just like get to the sidelines and get some water, you know, not get shoved into the middle of the ring necessarily. So you can see the way that these two initial dreams sort of reflect what Jody is going through, right? The fireman dream where he is asked to help other people through a disaster and he does not feel capable of doing that. The boxer dream where he is facing down something that is going to omit him and he does not feel capable of dealing with the fear of that encounter. And then and, and they all have that pattern of I am dressed as something I'm not and asked to do something I can't necessarily do and Carl's there also making me do it. And then right. we come to the the third dream at the end of the play and this is in that painful final scene where Carl has brought his own chair to the shop in and is in that unspoken language saying either I've tested positive or the disease is now much worse and and the end of my life is coming. And the dream is that he is dressed as uh, like a rock star and is pushed on the stage at a concert. And this time, what I love about how subtly distinct this dream is, is that Carl doesn't like push him back onto the stage. He's not like a manager or a crowd member demanding that he sing a specific song. This time, Carl is another member of the band and is up on the stage singing with him. This is the lines he says, uh, I'm doing Mr. Dylan proud. And the crowd is, Carl says, what? Jody, I just remembered something. Carl, what? Jody, you are there. Carl, I am. Jody, yes, you are. You are standing right next to me, Carl. You've been to the same thrift store. Carl, do I look okay? Jody, you look great. And we are singing, Carl. Er, yeah, Carl, I'm singing too. Jody, the band is shaking the rafters behind us. The crowd is shouting and swaying. And we are together, Carl. We are together and we are singing. Yeah. That, that turns that, you know, that, that, as you said, that kind of perfect uh, storytelling triad turns on the head on the third one, the, the way the dreams have been going and the development even that we have seen of their friendship, though, though, though this is like a, a small moment in their friendship, it's an important one, right? Something has, has kind of changed in Jody's perception of Carl and they've, they've, they've helped each other in a, in a new way. Yeah, and it, it what is interesting to me, too, about that dream is that Carl's relationship with Jody has changed from being somebody who pushes and forces him into something he doesn't feel capable of doing to somebody who's there with him singing. But it is 
and so you would think that that would be a marker in the play of a change in Carl and the way that he is interacting with Jody. But the dream comes amidst a moment where actually Jody is the one who has made a change in their relationship. He's made the decision to go outside of his shop and sort of confront the world, and now he has to be sort of the helper, like he is in the fireman dream, for Jody as, as Jody's about, or for Carl, as Carl's about to confront this really scary disease and the potential end of his life. And so it, it's a... It's almost an imperfect metaphor that is so pleasing to note the, the togetherness, the alignment of these guys in Jody's dream in a scene where Jody is the one who needs to initiate that alignment. Yeah, and, and for, for Jody, who, who is now going to be the rememberer, right? The whole play, Carl has been holding all of these people in, in his mind. Um, and and also in Jody's shop with the chairs um, and the, the play can't, like, is a little bit of a journey of Jody moving into that rememberer spot, him becoming more OK with the chairs that are all around his shop, him becoming more OK with the way Carl is expressing his grief and and eventually being the one who Carl brings his own chair, which, by the way, is a great prop moment we've heard this chair talked about before we know that carl has one chair in his tiny little apartment that he describes that is uh, or we at least he, he tells us this and we can choose whether to believe it or not um but it is kind of proven in this last moment as he brings this distinctive chair well-made turquoise seats um that that sits prominently on stage and we know we know what it means when it shows up that that Jody is going to have to carry the weight of this for Carl now moving forward as well. Yeah, I mean, if you're somebody that wants to be a playwright or study playwriting or even directing or, or acting or technical theater, read this script just to see the way that the master Stephen Dietz uses props. Uh, and what Jackson just described is is such a delightful, simple technique of describing and infusing a prop with so much weight before it ever comes on the stage. And when it does come on the stage, it doesn't even have to be mentioned. It's just right. placed in the shop and the character just looks at it and everybody knows what weight this chair has from all the description, from all the other chairs. This chair is given its final painful significance. I mean, it's masterful in its simplicity. Right. Which is then followed up by like uh, the, the other image of the play of the globe being uh, underneath the candles and blown out. So just just really beautiful storytelling in that final scene of the play. And the, the chairs, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention that Ionesco's play, The Chairs, is a, one of the sort of driving undercurrents of the play. Um, the, the quote that's at the beginning of the script in like the acknowledgement section and, and is then quoted later on in the script is so suggestive of the play and where this images of the chairs comes from and, and the idea of remembering the people that we lose. The quote is, We will leave some traces for we are people and not cities. Yeah. Yeah, and I believe that's the line that Carl quotes um, at one point during the play, if I remember correctly. He quotes one, one of the lines from, the, from that, that book, and, and it's like a really distinctive moment for Carl when uh, Jody tells him about the story. Uh, Jody, you know, tells the story of Ionesco's chairs with the people who are setting up chairs for the lecture, lecture person to come. They jump out the window at the end, and then... Like that, that's a fairly, you know, stark story. And Carl's response is, what happened to all the chairs? 
Well, right? he, his, so. his response is to be concerned about how the play is, how the story would potentially continue and maybe continue away from tragedy or into like the remembrance and the marking of the tragedy. Right. And Jody is somebody who says, well, the story is just over at that point. And I think it's notable that both characters interact with the chairs and Jody's description of his interaction with the chairs is of the painful tragedy that is the sort of highlighting image of these two people jumping out as the order arrives. And uh, for Carl, when he comes back after having read the story, that quote is what he brings. He brings this marker of remembrance after all. Yeah. I think we're about at the end of our time for this podcast. Like, like, I mean, we threw in uh, the, the reference to Ionesco at the end of the play, right? <laughs> or at the end of our conversation. There's so many levels of this play. We could continue talking about it right now, but alas, the time has run out. But the conversation doesn't have to end at the end of the podcast. Uh, if, if any of you want to keep talking about this play with us, we'd love to keep talking about the play. I, there's just there's just so much going on in it, right? Oh, my gosh. The play has so many levels. The levels of comedy that overwhelm and then kind of provide a nice bed and framework for the moments of pain and tragedy, the, the, the way that the map images contrast with the chair images, the way that uh, Jody's love of maps becomes part of his, his kind of way of objectifying and, and identifying and marking the world in a way that he understands. We didn't talk about that. I mean, it's just so, it's much, so much in this great, great script. And it's... Uh, uh, like we said, it's a little bit of a trip to read right now. The, there is a strange, I've used the word a couple of times, doubling that is this play that is a little bit regretful for how great of a play it is. Yeah, yeah. So so, so if you are, or have read the play, seen the play, been in the play, we'd love to keep talking about it with you. We're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on all of those sites. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those platforms. We'd love to keep talking about Lonely Planet with you. Yeah, if you'd like to recommend the podcast to your friends or family, we would be really appreciative of that. You probably know other people who like theater or like scripts or like literature. So send them our way. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, on Spotify, on Podbean. There's a number of other little places like that where we're published. But if you want an easy way to find us, just connect with us on Facebook. We publish a link to the new episode every Monday when it comes out, as well as the advertisements for the upcoming Monday's episode. So until next week, when we're talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.